No matter where you find yourself tonight, no matter what you believe, no matter what you've done, no matter how this semester has been, no matter how your day has gone, no matter what the weekend was like, we're glad that you're here. We want you to feel welcome in RUF. RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and we're one of the many campus ministries walking alongside you to help you grow in your faith, trying to figure out what it looks like to love God, love others, and to love Wofford imperfectly. And before we love God, before we love others, love Wofford, we are fundamentally bound by the reality that God loves us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so whether it's sermons, RUF lunch, meeting with me, meeting with Caroline, our Bible studies, our conferences, whatever we're doing, we want you to see and experience and to learn that Jesus loves you. We're continuing this Genesis 1 through 11 series tonight. We've been doing first things. So the first word on depravity is tonight. Last week was the first word on, oh my goodness, it was Cain and Abel. What was it? It was exclusion. We've done God's first word on humanity and sin and grace. Next week, our last and final week, we have two more large groups, but next week is our last one in Genesis. We're going to be covering the flood. But tonight is on depravity. So um, <clears throat> last month, this author from The Guardian wrote this article. Her name is Carrie Paul, and the, the, the title of the article is this. Slobbing out and giving up. Why are so many people going goblin mode? Goblin mode. Have you heard of this phrase? I'm curious. I'm not hearing any. I'm not seeing anybody. <laughs> goblin mode. Goblin mode is a lifestyle that one embraces when you completely give in to your most disgusting vices. Here's how Carrie Paul describes goblin mode. And this arose during COVID times, as one would naturally assume. Here we go. The term goblin mode embraces the comforts of depravity and a direct departure from the cottage core influences of early pandemic days. You know, when we were all doing like sourdough bread and stuff. At some point in the stretch of days between the start of the pandemic's third year and the feared launch of World War III, a new phase entered our world, a mysterious harbinger at a, an, of an age to come, and the people were calling it goblin mode because the term embraces, again, the comforts of depravity, spending the day in bed, watching 90-day fiancé on mute, while scrolling endlessly through social media, pouring the, pouring the end of a bag of chips into your mouth, downing ego, her ego toaster oven waffles with hot sauce over the sink because you can't be bothered to get your own plate. You leave the house in your pajamas and socks only to get one single Diet Coke from the grocery store. <laughs> goblin mode, this is my favorite. Goblin mode is when you wake up at 2 a.m. and shuffle into the kitchen to make a weird snack. Like, <laughs> like melted cheese on saltines. Goblin mode, listen... Goblin mode, this is great. Goblin mode has a complete lack of aesthetic. Because why would a goblin care about what they look like? Why would a goblin care about self-presentation? Goblin mode. Is that not your day's made? <clears throat> goblin mode. Now, we're laughing. But you know what I was, I was thinking when I was reading this essay about goblin mode? 
I was thinking about the most common illustration for human sinfulness without God's grace, and it's Gollum from The Lord of the Rings. If anyone goes go- like goblin mode, he basically is a goblin. It is Gollum. Remember, he was Smeagol, and he goes inward on himself. He's completely self-absorbed, and he physically transforms. Goblin mode, Gollum. That's where, and the Bible calls this a physical manifestation of actually what's going on on our insides, the human heart, without God's grace intervening. And that word is depravity. Now, it's going to get depressing for a little bit. If you hang on, if you hang on, I actually think that the, the doctrine and biblical theology that we're going to see in Genesis on human sinfulness and depravity is hopeful, it's honest, and it will help you live the Christian life more faithfully, certainly more honestly, because it frees us from having to pretend. So you see um, the text there. This is God's word. We can fumble through all these names. God's spoken to us. He's not silent. He's spoken to us not to give us a theology exam to ace, or a book of rules to follow. He's spoken to you and to me because he loves us. So remember last time, Cain and Abel. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erid, and Erid fathered Mahujul. Oh, my Lord. And Mahujul fathered Methuselah, Methuselah, oh my Lord. <clears throat> and I tried this like 75 times and I can't do it. <clears throat> and Methuselah fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. And the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. I was just, as I like, I did Hebrew and Greek in, in seminary, and I can't undo my southern accent of saying these names. Just hit me. It was like my Hebrew professor would like cringe right now. Verse 21. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who played a lyre and, and pipe. Zillah also bore Tabulacane, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Debulacane was Nama. <laughs> Lamech, he's important, verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Verse 24. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth for She said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And and at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is chapter 6, verse 6, or verse uh, 1 here. When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives as many as they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is, he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Then the Nephilim were on the, were on the earth in those days. 
and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of, who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray and we'll walk through it. Lord, your word is living and active even with these names that we cannot pronounce as we read. We know that it's living and active though. So I do ask that you would help us to slow down. We're walking in here and our minds are busy. Our hearts are restless. We ask that you would open our eyes to the beauty of Jesus. We will not see him unless you do that. And we ask it in his name. Amen. See the game plan, the darkness of depravity and the depths of mercy if you're the note-taking type. The darkness of depravity, the depths of mercy. Let's do the first one, the darkness of depravity. Okay, there's an old prayer, a confession of sin prayer that I love, and here's how it goes. Apart from your grace, O Lord, there is no health in us. Apart from your grace, O Lord, there is no health in us. That's an old prayer. Is that a pessimistic prayer? Is that a depressing prayer? Or is it honest? It's honest. And it's, so the biblical theme that we see of depravity that this passage reinforces is just that, that man, humanity, apart from God's grace, what sin has done to us as this parasitic power that we've been talking about is that it's made us, we're, we're not basically good. Humanity doesn't just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps to get reconciled to God, get reconciled to neighbor. We're not basically good. And our passage tonight reinforces that. This is a dark doctrine. It's unpopular. It is, but I want you to hang on to see the hope of it. And so I want you to see that Cain, last week, you're like, couldn't get any worse. It actually gets worse with Cain. So if you look in verse 16, Cain starts to go off the rails. We see that he's moving away from God's presence. In other words, he's on the run. He's running away from God. In verse 17, he builds a city. And he's building a city, what we end up seeing about the city. It's a city that he wants to be a refuge from God, not a city with God. It's a city where he is king and he is Lord and he lives a life without reference to God at all. So then notice what Lamech does. Remember I mentioned him. Lamech is the first person in the Bible to go against the grain of the way God wants marriage and sexuality to be. He goes against the grain. So rather than marrying just one woman, he takes as many wives as possible as he wants. Lamech does whatever Lamech wants to do when it comes to marriage and sexuality. He's going against the grain of how God has made the world. He's living a life without reference to God. And then Lamech goes on and he repeats. This is the first time, one of the first times that we see generational sin. He's repeating the sin of Cain and he murders. In verse 23, he says this, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. A young man, if you do the research on this, is actually a child, a youngling. It's a child. He killed a child. That's what happened. So building cities apart from God, running from God, marrying tons of people, killing a child. 
unraveled, depravity is spreading. It is out of control. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, you probably notice those creepy verses. There's so many questions about who's Nephilim, who are the sons of God. There, and there's lots of questions that people haven't got to the bottom of it. There's lots of different conclusions to that. But it's very clear what verses 1 to 4 of chapter 6 is trying to say. It is pure evil. It is dark. And God looks out on this world of depravity, of this out-of-control situation, the fall of man, and it is spreading like wildfire. And he says these chilling words. I want you to hear this again. This is verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man, and that it was great in the earth, and that the intention, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Y'all, this is the verse on a doctrine of sin, on a doctrine of depravity. Tim Keller highlights several features of depravity. I want you all to see them. These are very helpful. First, the thing that we see is that sin is universal. It's everywhere. Sin is universal. It's everywhere. And the second thing that we see is that sin is a matter of the heart. Sin isn't out there in the neighborhoods that I'm allergic to, the people that I'm allergic to. It's not just in Vladimir Putin's heart, it's in here. Sin is interior. It's inside. Third, we see that sin is about the intentions of our twisted hearts. It's it's not just behavior. It's not just breaking rules. Breaking God's law is just a manifestation of what's going on on our insides. The intentions of our hearts. Then fourth, we see that sin is relational. Did you notice that it said that this grieved God to his heart. God, again, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Genesis 1 and 2. How amazing was that? The first part of Genesis. Life as it was supposed to be before the parasite and the power of sin comes into the picture. And what did that life consist of? Perfect communion with God himself. And that was twisted, distorted, alienation, isolation. It's relational. This is when David in Psalm 51, when he commits adultery and he has someone murdered, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. I didn't just break rules. Give me a break. This is relational. And that's, in, that's informative for us. Sidebar, when we do repentance and we do confession of sin, it's not just like, Lord, I like broke a rule. It's like, I, there's something going on relationally. Now, the cross, like, that sin is on the cross. We're going to get there later in the sermon. But it, the point is, like, sin is relational. I'm running away from my father, okay? So sinful depravity is directed towards a person, and that person is God. The Apostle Paul doesn't do goblin mode. He doesn't do goblin. He actually, in Ephesians 2, refers to us as spiritual corpses. Listen to this. You think this is dark? Listen to Paul. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Dark, depressing, let's move on. The depths of mercy. Do you notice the last word, the, the last verse? Noah. He's mentioned. He found favor with God. 
He found favor with God. Noah did not earn favor. Salvation is not earned. Salvation is given. It is a gift. Of course it can't be earned. It's that dark. We're that twisted. There's no way we can earn it. Salvation is a gift. Paul goes on. Listen. Paul then goes on. Real dark, depravity, golem, goblin mode. Then, but God, being rich in mercy, intervention. Because of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. How? By grace you have been saved. You're not earning this. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. For by grace you've been saved. Through faith, not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You can't earn this. It is a gift. He found favor. He didn't earn favor. God was gracious. God's response to human depravity is mercy because mercy is our only shot, period, full stop. Mary Carr is is an author and poet. I I love her poetry. She grew up in rural Texas. And in her memoir, she's written a couple of memoirs, and one is called Cherry. And she describes life and all of the complications that she experienced as a 14-year-old very depressed, very dark, very anxious, very sad. And her parents leave for work one day and she decides that she's going to commit suicide and take a handful of pills. She does that. And it makes her really, really sick. She doesn't die, but her parents come home and they find, she, they find her sick on the ground. And they just think that she has like food poisoning or something. And they ask her when they wake her up, is there anything that sounds good for you to eat? And she said, she doesn't know why, she said, I would love a plum. I would love a plum. The problem was, plums were out of season. And so Mary just goes to bed, but the next morning, she wakes up to her dad walking into her room with an entire bushel of plums. And what had happened, he drove all through the night across the state into Oklahoma to get plums that were in season, came back and gave them to Mary. And this is what she says about it. It's when you sink your teeth into the plum that you make a promise. The skin of the plum is still warm in dad's car. And the nectar runs down your chin and you snap out of it. Or I was snapped out of it. Never again will you lay a hand against yourself. Not so long as there are plums to eat and somebody who cares enough to haul them to you. That's how you acquire the resolution to live. You do not earn it. It is given. God's love is not earned. It is given. There's no way we can earn this. Now, we also see that God's love, the power and like the depths that God's love is willing to go to meet us in our sin and depravity is that God doesn't ignore sin or depravity. He deals with it. 
And he deals with it by sending his son to rescue us from the due penalty and punishment that our depraved hearts actually deserve. He deals with it head on. No God does this. No God willingly substitutes himself. Christ died, what's the call to worship? For sinners. That's substitution language. That's atonement language. The Apostle Paul, again, I'm going to read it again. For a while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is his answer to depravity. Verse 7, for once will scarcely die for a righteous person. Verse 8, but God shows us his love for us, what he's willing to do to deal with us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. On the cross, Jesus has said to his father, do not kill her, kill me. Do not punish him. Punish me. We see how far he's willing to go to deal with depravity. He deals with it himself. He willingly dies. The depths of God's mercy is as severe as our sin. The self-righteous, like older brother Pharisee sins of judgmental, like kind of your sarcastic tone, and the twisted stuff that you like don't even want to talk to a therapist about. All of it, past, present, and future, was on him. And if it's on him, it is not on you. Ever. You are clean. Now what? <clears throat> Lots of application. I want you to see three things. It's going to be short, okay? This is not another th- sermon. <clears throat> okay. Here, here's the hope. I'm going to get very practical. I care a lot about what I'm about to say, okay? If you, if you have an honest view of human sinful depravity, it's going to help you in three ways in the Christian life. And the first one is this. It's going to make you have a high view of the cross. Y'all, if you have a low view of sin, you're going to have a low view of the cross. If you have a low view of sin then you can save yourself. And so Jesus is just your life coach now. He's either your substitute or a life coach. Y'all choose. He's either your therapist or your buddy, or he died in your place. You choose, okay? High view of sin, if we're that twisted and we can't earn it, then we gotta be rescued. Then it's gotta be that dark. He has to die like that. He's gotta be a substitute, okay? Low of view of sin, weak Savior. We're wasting our time. High view of sin, if it's that impossible, let's go. Okay. Second thing is this. An honest view of sin and depravity helps you renounce the lie that you can save yourself. You can stop pretending that your life is under control. You can stop pretending that these addictions are manageable. can stop pretending. That's what he wants in the first place. That's childlike, isn't it? You can say things like, I can't make myself right with God. Then God has to declare me innocent. I don't have the wisdom to make these important decisions. He has to guide me. I can't forgive that family member who abandoned me. So God has to soften my heart. Y'all, if you have an honest view of sin, the result is going to be 100%, 100% dependence on Jesus. 
Because if you have this soft view of sin where like you can just like God helps those who helps themselves, bumper sticker theology, oh, like burnout is on the way, first of all, because you don't need help. You're just doing your own thing. Second of all, he wants to help you. He wants to be your shepherd to guide and to feed you and to direct you and to protect you. An honest view of sinfulness in our own hearts results in this childlike dependence on your father and this like weak, sheep-like, clueless, help me kind of faith. And that's the sweet spot. It's just so uncomfortable for competent people like y'all. And I'm not competent, y'all are. I want y'all to see this last thing. An honest view of sin like this changes your, your, your relationships. It changes your relationships. It actually lowers, it gives you a sober-minded, it gives you sober-minded expectations for people. You have family members, I have family members and friends, whether it's addictions or compulsive behaviors, things that they can't shake and you just can't understand, you've been listening, they've gone to all the therapists, they've tried all the things, If you have this kind of understanding of sin, the result, and you know that sin is in there, it's also in that person, it helps you be patient with them now. Because they have this parasite in them called sin, and it's running loose in their hearts. And it helps you be so much more long-suffering with them as they're struggling. Rather than getting them to like, get to your level spiritually or whatever, whatever your level is but rather you can suffer with people. Remember the wounded healer stuff from last semester I talked about every now and then. Like you can go into the suffering of others because they're being beaten down by life in a fallen world. Of course they are. The life in a fallen world is that dark. It's been for you. And so now you can see other people as fellow sufferers in a sin-sick world. Okay. This view of sin gets the cross on full, glorious display. This view of sin helps us to stop pretending that our lives are under control and that we can save ourselves. And then it helps us view others with compassion and patience. All right, last thing. I love this book called Runaway Bunny. You've heard me talk about this before, especially seniors. But Annie, she doesn't let me finish the whole book but she brings it to me all the time, wants me to read it. Read it. The illustrations are amazing. It's a very simple book. It's not complicated. A little bunny who wants to run away goes up to mom bunny and says, I'm going to run away from you. Here's her response. <clears throat> if you run away, I will run after you because you're my little bunny. <clears throat> if you run after me, the little buddy resp- bunny responds, I will become a fish in a trout stream and I will swim away from you. If you become a fish in a trout stream, says the mom, I will become a fisherman and I will fish for you. The little bunny keeps up with, keeps up coming with things like a rock, crocus, a sailboat, new things to run away from mom. And the mom keeps coming up with things like a mountain climber and fisherman to catch the bunny. Because no matter where the little bunny goes, the mom is going to go rescue and chase the bunny down. That's the point of the story. Do you not want 
some authoritative, powerful, gracious someone to chase you down and to rescue you. You're not Cain. I'm not Cain. You might not be the prodigal son. You might be the older son. I hope that we have been able to see that our hearts are on the run. And I want you to see that God on the cross has said this. I will go as far as it takes to bring you back to me. I will go as far as it takes to bring you back to me. That is his answer. The good news of the gospel will not be sweet if we don't get honest about the darkness of what's going on in here. Okay? But the good news is, is that this Easter weekend stuff is not a fantasy. It's a historical event, and he will come back. And our depravity and our sinfulness will be like a a mist. He promised he will. Let me pray.